You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, April 17th, yet another crazy day in markets. We have our managing editor, Ed Harrison, standing by with Real Vision's own Ash Bennington, and they're ready to give their macro analysis of everything that's going on. But before we go to them, let's quickly go over the latest news in markets, starting out with some price action. It was another strong day for U.S. equities, with all three major indices rallying. The big winners of the day were Boeing, up 14.7% and ExxonMobil, up 10.4%. So the markets were fully in risk-on mode. Apple was down 1.3%, as Goldman Sachs predicted a major decline in their iPhone sales. And while we're on the subject of interesting charts, I want to draw attention to a stock that's been exhibiting some truly extreme price action. The name of the company is Liberty TripAdvisor Holdings. It's a holding company that owns 23% of TripAdvisor, Uh, and 58% of the voting share. On Wednesday, the Class B shares skyrocketed 2,200%. What a wild swing. This on the same day that Class A shares went up a mere 21%. That's a change barely visible if you view both securities on the same chart. Despite Class B shares having 10 times greater voting power, it's my understanding that both issues have the same economic rights making the spread between the Class A and Class B shares all the more confounding. Nobody really knows why this is happening. Liberty TripAdvisors professing that it is as baffled as we are, insisting in a press release issued today that it, quote, is not aware of the reasons for the recent volatility in its stock price. No mainstream press outlet has reported about this. It is a small cap stock, but man, what a crazy price dislocation. Class A and Class B shares normally trading in lockstep. It really is remarkable. And on the subject of price asymmetry, we're seeing some peculiarities in the gold market where prices have declined for the past three days, ending the epic rally that we've seen since mid-March. But more interesting are the price dislocations between the different gold markets. I'm talking specifically futures and spot prices. Now, if you look at this chart, you'll see the dark blue lines are physical spot prices for gold, whereas the thin and red and orange lines are future prices. And you can see there's a compression between futures and spot prices. Uh, That means the market is exiting the contango phase and it's just beginning to enter backwardation. And this is interesting because if you look back over the last couple of months, you can see that there's a strong correlation between backwardation in gold and S&P sell-offs. You know, whenever those futures become cheaper than the spot price, that's a time when the S&P is likely to sell off. You can see several of those pockets that I've circled there. So it will be interesting to see what this means going forward. So, wow, a lot going on with markets. Thanks for sticking with Real Vision during these wild times. And thank you for your comments on yesterday's video. We really do read your comments and we really appreciate your feedback. Man, such a crazy time. The dominoes really are lining up. And to make sense of it all, right now, we have Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington with their market analysis. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It is Friday, April 17th. I'm here in New York City, joined by Ed Harrison, our managing editor in the D.C. Bureau. Welcome, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. And uh, let me just say before we start, I'm, a, I'm feeling a bit punchy today. So if I seem like I'm a bit off, uh, 
you know, that's why. And also, I will say that I'm looking at you. I'm thinking uh, Full Metal Jacket with uh, with your haircut because I'm thinking that <laughs> on Monday that's the cut that I'm I'm going to be showing. That that's well, nice. what I want. Yours is looking a little long here, Ed. You're looking oh, yeah, like- exactly. It, it it needs. I mean, we, we've got the coronavirus cuts coming, and and mine's coming on Monday. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to have a new sort of fashion thing that uh, everybody's going to be sporting crew cuts because they're just the easiest thing in the world to do. Exactly. They really are. That's 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 how I'm going to play it. <laughs> so uh, one other technical note, Raul was supposed to be joining us today, but he's having some uh, slight technical problems. One of the challenges of living in paradise is sometimes we have some minor connectivity glitches, but we'll get him back uh, next week. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm doing the route position. You're in, in the in the me position now. So we've swapped roles a little bit. Yes. Um, so so Ed, here we are. Close of the week. Um, obviously, a tremendous amount of news flow this week. Relatively quiet Friday um, in terms of uh, sort of game changer things. What are you looking at and uh, what's your outlook? Yeah, so I have a, a number of different things I'm looking at. Uh, uh, let me tell you, because I, I have on my other screen two or three stories that uh, Gabrielle, who works in content, has sent uh, to me. One's about uh, China and how they're handling EM debtors in this virus crisis. Another yeah. is about uh, uh, the U.S. states uh, being threatened uh, with their budgets by coronavirus. A third I thought was very interesting that she sent over is about the Bank of Russia uh, dropping rates. I want to talk a little bit about that in the context of EM and and also what the ruble looks like. And then finally, uh, just as a preview of a conversation I'm having next week, uh, Chris Whalen, he had an article out talking about banks he was talking about commercial real estate. I think that that's going to be very interesting, uh, what's happening both in terms of commercial as well as residential in terms of write-downs for banks and what it could mean for Fannie and Freddie as well. Yeah, Chris Whalen, one of the sharpest guys looking at uh, looking at bank stocks, looking at bank operations, and also looking at Fannie and Freddie. You know, of the stories that you mentioned, the one that I thought was the potentially most ominous uh, was the state government uh, budgetary shortfall. I mean, the basically the lead of the story is that there's the potential to have a $500 billion hole uh, in state tax revenues caused by the ferocity of uh, the shutdowns. And, um, you know, it's Again, we get tired of saying this phrase, but uh, there's some there's some suspicion based on the preliminary modeling uh, that it looks worse than uh, what we saw a decade ago uh, with the Great Recession. Um, you know, as of this point, we've got 150 billion dollars uh, that has been approved by Congress on this. You know, obviously we're about a third of the way there. Um, you know, and uh, the article also goes on to say that uh, new legislation is going to be fun- focusing on uh, replenishing that 350 billion from uh, from the shortfall for uh, the Small Business Association. Ed, when you when you look at those gaps, what do you think? So, I mean, the first thing that's on my mind, honestly, is the uh, retirement crisis. I don't know if you remember, we ran a uh, a series uh, a little while ago on retirements, and one of the things that uh, stuck out to me was about pension funds for U.S. states. If you compared Canadian pension plans to U.S. state pension plans, you saw that there was a huge gaping hole in U.S. pension plans. So when we think of 2008, 2009, you can think about Meredith Whitney as an example of someone who people thought she was out to lunch and, and, and that her call on municipal bonds was incorrect in the great financial crisis. But you know, my feeling at the time was that what she was talking about was 
if we continued down in a very negative trajectory in the economy, then those things would come to the fore. Now here we are a decade later, and we're in the middle of a huge downturn. I think those same issues are going to come up. So I'm not as concerned, per se, about the budgets themselves, because I think that the federal government can make whole on the, on the budget. The real concern for me is, is any sort of impact that it would have on, uh, on the retirement, on the pension plans in, the, in those states. Right. You know, when Whitney came out with that report, people in Muniland were a little bit dismissive of her and kind of said, you know, stay in your lane. We do this every day and we know better. Um, but as you suggest, um, you know, that call may have been prescient, though, early. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, the only thing that uh, is positive in terms of uh, thinking about it from that perspective is that the market is doing as well as it is. I think uh, it's it, we, we ended at 28.74 today on the S&P. And I think I was looking at the 62% retracement as 29.20. So we're still a bit away from that level yet. And to the degree that we stay in that range, we don't have another uh, precipitous drop. That's positive for those pension plans. But if the, the, the financial economy follows the real economy down, then I think you're going to be in trouble in terms of uh, state and local pensions. Well, that's really it, Ed. You just hit on the key point there, this question of uh, whether the relative resiliency of the market is, in fact, uh, you know, uh, is in fact a, a blessing or a curse. So obviously, it helps, to support, uh, it helps to support pension plans to have those levels in U.S. equity markets be where they are. But again, and this is the, the conversation that we've talked about so many times uh, on this show, uh, which is, is the financial economy out of step with the real economy? Yeah, I had a conversation with Kevin Muir about it. It was very interesting what he had to say. He was talking about, uh, you know, guns blazing, basically, from a fiscal and a monetary perspective, especially the fiscal perspective. And he was somewhat sanguine about the ability for markets to, uh, to, to continue to somewhat levitate. Maybe there's some pressure down, but there's not a huge downdraft move coming forward. I'm a little bit less... Uh, Sanguine. I think that there is the potential, especially if you look at some of the models in terms of COVID-19, how, how they played out, what would happen in the United States. I saw that Kathy O'Neill, who we've actually had on here at Real Vision, she was doing some modeling. She was looking at Spain and Italy and what the, uh, the, the path of COVID infections looked like. And what it looked like was a ramp up that you see sort of in a bell curve. But then on the backside of the curve, the ramp down wasn't symmetric with the ramp up. It was a much more gradual uh, dispersion down in terms of the case count. And so that would suggest that the ability to uh, release yourself from lockdown, especially if you've had a, a huge ramp up, is less. And so the real economy impact is going to be greater as a result. And the United States is more akin to, say, Spain or Italy than it is to Denmark or, or New Zealand, which have uh, done much better in that regard. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this uh, as well, which is there's obviously a lot of complexity in these models. There's a lot of uncertainty because there's really no known data set to draw on. You know, maybe for that reason, I like to keep things a little bit simpler. Um, obviously, neither of us are experts in epidemiological modeling. This stuff gets pretty abstruse. But the one thing that I think we can we can we can see as a pretty reasonable starting point is the number that you mentioned earlier, Ed, the 28.74, the Friday close. So from uh, we had a holiday shortened week yesterday, uh, last week, and uh, the, the S&P closed uh, Thursday 
April 9th uh, at 27.89. So we've risen 3% this week. Um, and you know, two of the key dates that I look at, and again, this is just plain vanilla, incredibly simple, basic stuff, right? Wednesday, February 19th was the all-time high in uh, U.S. equity markets on the S&P. The close was 33.86. Another key date, the uh, all-time low, uh, post-crisis low, rather, I should say, on, uh, on the S&P was uh, Monday, March 23rd, when it closed down uh, at 22.37. So some really basic numbers. We have gained, since the low post-crisis, 28.5% on the S&P. As of Friday's, as of Friday's close, 20, some 20 minutes ago. And if you look from the all-time high for the S&P, we are down 15.1%. 15.1%, minus 15.1%. I walk outside of, you know, my apartment building here in Manhattan and I see, you know, businesses closed. I see people wearing masks. You know, I, I see my doorman behind a layer of plexiglass that makes him look like the bank teller. And I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. The economy is shifting. Uh, it's small businesses are being devastated. Uh, and, and I look and I see we're in moderate correction territory. It's really, it's really hard for me to reconcile these two things, and and maybe uh, maybe I'm looking at this too simplistically, but it really does feel, at least to me, like there is a colossal disconnect between the real economy and U.S. equity markets. I would say as well, but you know, let's let's look at it from sort of the other side of that. Okay, so you might have a predisposition, as we do, to say that there's going to be a meeting on the downside between the economy and uh, markets because the, uh, the staying power of the negative negativity and the economic activity is, is large. But what about the concept that the Fed is buying up uh, risk-free assets and actually has moved somewhat down the curve in terms of the assets they're prepared to, to buy, and that's pushing people out the risk curve in a way that can cause them to, to maintain a level of buoyancy in markets uh, until we actually see the real economy catch up to some degree. So that there's going to be a disconnect. The way you could po- possibly look at it is a lack of market signal that because the Fed has basically gotten all in and they're, they're in all of the markets, that there are fewer market signals that are, are, that are real. So you have some level of levitation. And then the question is, is how long uh, can they do that? And, uh, and will the real economy catch up eventually? Right. And I might add also at what cost. If you're forcing, uh, if you're forcing investors further out on the risk curve, uh, you're talking about uh, you know people who desperately need to get some yield, uh, and they're going out away from uh, from traditional safe assets. Their typical asset allocation between bonds uh, and equities has shifted as a consequence. That's obviously baking in some additional risk. Look, I think that all of the things you said are, are spot, spot on. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of not just theory but data to support that. But for me. That's that's the case in a in a plain vanilla recession, um, and we really just don't know what the impact of of the structural changes to the U.S. economy caused by the coronavirus crisis are going to be. And as a consequence, the the fear is: Are we setting ourselves up for another shoe to drop? 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, mentally what I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about uh, the Kobe earthquake in I think it was 95. This was six years after the Japanese market peaked. And what you saw was is the ability for the Japanese uh, policymakers to levitate the market. You know, it, it took a hit. And so you had these waves of 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 uh, over a very long period of time of the market going down, reaccelerating for a relatively long period of time before the next uh, downturn hit and the, and the market went down again. So on some mm -hmm. level, uh, I do think that perhaps the the Fed can, and, and also fiscal policy, I might add, in particular, can uh, keep us in, a, in a, 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 a buoyant mood for a longer period of time than we might think. But how long is the question and, wh and whether the, the real economy catches up, uh, we just don't know yet. Yeah, it's such an interesting metaphor, uh, a natural disaster like an earthquake, because that seems to be uh, the metaphor that, you know, seems to work in many ways in terms of the actual shifts of the, the economy on the ground. Of course, the distinction here is that this is a global synchronized earthquake, <laughs> right. Right. which we've never seen before. Um, and, you know, uh, maybe the uh, maybe the, uh, you know, some of the, the metaphor to extend from uh, from Japan is uh, is the absence of recovery and secular stagnation that's lasted. Uh, it's now lost decades with an S, um, you know, uh, <laughs> what can we say? Unprecedented again. You know, um, when we're talking about buoyancy, I'm thinking about these stories that Gabrielle sent. In particular, let's look at the Bank of Russia story that she uh, she was talking about, uh, where the Bank of Russia has uh, said that it's going to cut rates. And actually, people are getting into ruble assets, into government bonds. Government bond yields are falling as a result of that. Now, what we normally see is that people say, OK, look, actually, you're cutting and uh, you need dollars or you're an emerging market. You need to, to increase your rates to attract our money. But it's the opposite now. So on some level, when we think about uh, people moving out the risk curve, this is, this is the perfect example of that. I looked right. actually also at the same time at uh, the ruble U.S. dollar uh, relationship. And what I saw over the last year is, you know, uh, we were trading about 65 USD. RUB was trading about 65 up until around January, in which case there was a massive move, a spike up to 80. And that mm -hmm. spike uh, was right up until uh, we got the Fed. As soon as the Fed came in and they uh, said, you know, we're going to backstop markets, including uh, the AAA paper, including all um, all uh, IG uh, credit. Then we saw a move back up in the ruble to the sort of 73 range. And that's right. about where we are now. We're slightly higher than that uh, for the U.S. dollar. But the, the point is, is all of this buoyancy that we're talking about, it isn't just about uh, uh, U.S. assets. It's not just about the U.S. equity market. It's having a, an impact around the world. And you can see that if you just look at that particular scenario, Russia, as an example.
Right. Yeah. And, and then, of course, obviously, the Fed moved down the curve to start supporting and, and purchasing in the junk market. You know, I don't follow uh, Russian ruble levels uh, as closely as you do, Ed, but I'm, I am sort of like just listening to you talk about it. You make a really interesting case, uh, which is, is, is this markets saying we believe that the, that the currency risk of depreciation is going to be compensated for or outstripped by the rate of progress in Russian equity markets? Is that the play? You know, I mean, I don't know how you can massage it because ultimately, not only has the ruble strengthened from uh, from its lows before the Fed came in, but you're getting a lower return because they're cutting rates and they're saying to you that we're going to leave rates uh, lower for longer, and so uh, you're also getting a lower return. So you're getting a lower return. Uh, and perhaps maybe the uh, the currency will compensate, not in the way that we normally would think. Uh, we would think that actually the ruble would uh, would go down. So I think that what's happening, honestly, is that uh, people are looking for assets where they they can uh, pick up some yield. Uh, and uh, and so the things that are happening in one market are trickling down into other markets. So if the Fed engineers, uh, you know, a backstop in this market then it causes people to look to other places for value. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, once again, another watch phrase from the from the Great Recession, lower for longer, forward guidance, looking at banks uh, suggesting or uh, engaging in a little bit of moral suasion uh, to push down yields for a longer period of time as we move out the curve. You know, one thing that's interesting, uh, when we talk internally, and we've been talking a lot about uh, the real estate market. You know, I think some of the people who uh, respond to our product, they're like, "Why don't you talk more about real estate?" So, right. in the in the when we think about this, uh, I was thinking about Chris Whalen, who we're going to talk to next week, and he was talking about banks. Here's here's an interesting tidbit for you: is in an article that he wrote, he uh, added up all of the share repurchases by uh, big banks. And the number he came to in 2019 was 109 billion dollars. So now, if you think about banks in terms of you know uh, their earnings, uh, we're not talking about the write downs, but just their earnings from the revenue and so forth. That's 109 billion dollars of potential capital that they could use in order to shore up their balance sheets, and they're as well capitalized as you could possibly expect. So I think it's interesting. That uh, you know, on two levels, one in terms of banks' ability to withstand this particular uh, recession slash depression, and also what it means in terms of a lack of share buybacks. What does that mean in terms of the ability for equities to remain uh, buoyant over the longer period? Yeah, and also something that you alluded to, I believe, last week, which is the long-term status and structure of the U.S. banking system. You know, if there's going to be uh, if there's going to be support for the U.S. banking system, is there the risk of a backlash from from you know from share buybacks? There's something that there's something that feels, I think, in a lot of people's stomachs, uh, a little bit wrong about it. And it's also an opportunity for maybe some populist uh, politicians in an election year uh, to get a little political hay uh, out of beating up on bankers, which is always a popular sport. Right. I mean, I, I think of airlines as soon as you say that, because people were talking about American Airlines buying back shares and now they're reaching for handouts. How do you deal with that question? Because you could make the argument that uh, American Airlines in a garden variety recession would feel no pain and that the buybacks were par for the course. 
but right. we're in a different environment, and I think people are very angry that right. these companies are reaching for the the handout till when they you know they basically loaded up to the to support their executives because their executives are paid based upon earnings per share, and when you buy back shares, your earnings per share go up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I would probably just add to that, that there's something there seems to be something special as a category about banks in the American public consciousness. This is something that goes back uh, to the progressive era, at least as a political uh, as a bit of political theater. There's something about uh, an industry that most Americans don't understand that they have fears about that they write a mortgage check to that seems to be uniquely well positioned for political scorn. Yeah, and so what do you uh, what do you what's your general view of how this plays out in terms of from a populist perspective? Let's say, and this is an election year, remember? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there there are a lot of unprecedented things that we have happening. Right, we had Bernie Sanders' uh, candidacy uh, on the Democratic side, which um, you know was was looking really for a while there like he was going to win the nomination that didn't wind up happening uh, but it shows that there is a significant movement on the left wing of the democratic party where these policies are incredibly popular and the other sort of curveball that we have here is that president trump is not a typical uh, Republican, big business, kind of George H.W. Bush country club Republican, uh, and has some populist elements of his own political platform, of his own campaigning style. So I just don't know. I really don't. And it's going to be incredibly interesting to watch. Well, I can tell you, as soon as you started saying that, I was thinking to myself, the one industry that should get bailouts because President Trump is the president is the real estate industry, right? Because he's directly connected to that industry. He feels that pain. He knows where they're coming from. I, I can't uh, think that that industry is not going to get a bailout. But, you know, let's think about the, the WeWorks of the world, because they're going to go to zero in all probability. Uh, commercial real estate, that's going to be a huge problem going forward. I think that, uh, you know, that's the one industry that we need to get more color on. Where are the landmines? Because if you recall in 2007, 2008, we were saying that, you know, the mortgage-backed security market actually is a, a market that is on the balance sheets of asset managers. It's not on the balance sheets of banks. So it's not a big problem. We've securitized these, uh, these losses. But lo and behold, uh, when push came to shove, we found out there were all sorts of landmines waiting to get blown up on the balance sheets of U.S. banks. So it's not clear to me that uh, it's any different this time, just that the banks have better balance sheets. Yeah. And to pick up on your, your point that I think is spot on about the commercial real estate industry, look, you know, and, and the WeWorks of the world, look, if, if, if SoftBank's vision fund takes a hit, the, the world goes on, right? I mean, investors lose money, but the world goes on. The, the real question that, that I've been thinking about more broadly outside of this, this narrow scope of like the trading band, what happened to the S&P this week or that, you know, what happens to the structures of the U.S. economy, right? I made reference to this, I think, with Roger, the, the the New Yorker cartoon, where it's a guy sitting in his home office, and the caption is, "Gee, I guess that meeting could have been a phone call, right?" So the idea that things are really changing structurally, you know, for example, in the in the commercial real estate space, we see, we saw Macy's lay off one hundred and thirty thousand 
employees or furlough 130,000 employees. Some, I suspect, large percentage of those employees, unfortunately, are not going back to their jobs. Right. Uh, and if that happens and there are store closures, there are feed-throughs to the commercial real estate industry. Look, you know, um, 22-year-olds don't go to the mall. They don't shop at JCPenney. They don't shop at Macy's. They're online. You know, they see something that uh, that they, they a cool uh, thing they like on Snapchat, and they go on Amazon and they buy it. We're in a totally new world, and we have this massive glut of commercial real estate uh, that's been that's been built up. You know, we're of an age where we remember the the boom in shopping malls. We're when when you know things were moving from neighborhood shops in small towns to these big mega shopping malls with anchor stores. It was a model of a new economy at the time, and now it's beginning to look pretty antiquated. It's beginning to look like an old economy. So what happens when you know there's pressure on commercial real estate? How does that feed through into banks? These are really big structural questions that I just don't believe are being addressed by these models that show you know, Q4 or Q1 2021 rapid snapbacks. There's a lot that's happening here under the surface. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that I think Real Vision is so interesting. We're talking about these issues. We're talking about things that are behind the headlines, that are broader trends. You know, um, you know, Mike Green has been talking about what what's going to happen with concentration of wealth, where you see, you know, Jeff Bezos getting incredibly rich uh, and the neighborhood corner stores going out of business. This is a this is something that, you know, we just don't have our heads around yet. Well, you know, the the first thing that came to mind as you were talking about that is a an assumption that I made or I have been making that could be wrong, and that is in terms of time frame. Uh, the time frame that we've seen moves in so far during this particular crisis have been very compressed. Uh, and so I've been making the assumption that they will continue to be compressed and that when you make parallels to previous crises, uh, you're thinking in terms that are much larger than will actually happen here. Maybe that's actually not the case, because the way that you're talking about it, it could be that uh, there's discovery left to be had. Because think in 2007, 2007, that crisis began with Household International, which was a subsidiary of HSBC at the time, writing yep. down uh, you know, like $10 billion of uh, subprime mortgages in February 2007. So that, you know, that was a non-event, a non, it wasn't a, a global event. And so it took time, uh, yeah. you know, for you to see BNP Paribas, Bear Stearns funds, uh, you know, write downs at Merrill Lynch in October 2007. You know, the whole daisy chain started to unravel over time. So perhaps when you talk about commercial real estate and you say, we don't know what's on the balance sheets of these banks, we don't know where the, the landmines are hidden, uh, maybe the longer this uh, particular episode goes on, the more uh, financial fragility we'll find uh, behind the scenes. And that's actually negative in terms of uh, you know, risk, risk assets uh, like equities. Right. You know, I, two things come to mind when you say that. The, the first is, um, you know, the history of the 2007-2008 crisis in regard to timing is such an interesting one. Uh, for people who are subscribers to your credit write-downs, you did a great history of the 2007-2008 uh, financial crisis. And the thing that's striking when you read through it, and it's very nicely laid out with the dates and with the actual events that were triggers, is just how long a period of time it takes to unfold. How these were events that people were talking about who were only 
only interested in these really wonky areas of uh, you know of the of the mortgage and banking space, and no one generally cared, and life went on, and then it didn't, right? And it was just this massive flip. Uh, and uh, so I, I encourage people to go and take a look at that because it's a really good analysis and breakdown, and it makes that point very clearly. Now it's sort of the old saw or the old chestnut about how how uh, you know history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And in this case, the rhyme scheme maybe the meter has been dramatically accelerated. You know, Nouriel Roubini made this point uh, in the interview that I did with him, which was to say, look, these massive retrenchments have happened very quickly on a very short news cycle, and it's it's really very interesting. You know, my other thought is. There's a there's a there's a phrase in evolutionary biology, punctuated equilibrium, and the idea is that that you know you have things that appear to be in balance for a while, and then there's a step function, there's a jump, and right. I sort of wonder, you know, things appear to be moving in a sort of very smooth linear fashion, and you know maybe well some stores are closing, and I do a lot more of my shopping on Amazon, but then there's a flip, there's a step function, there's a kick in where something happens and the move goes from happening, you know like a slow rate to a very quick rate. It's like the Ernest Hemingway line about how you go broke, first very slowly and then all at once. Um, and I wonder about some of those structural shifts in the U.S. economy, the transition to greater digitization and what that means, uh, some of which uh, may have some really negative and, in fact, very frightening implications for, uh, for, for savers uh, and, uh, and, and for U.S. wage earners, which isn't to say that, uh, that I'm bearish about the future of technology. I think there's a lot of great opportunity, obviously. Um, but how we get there remains, I think, again, an open question. But isn't it true that how we get there is through a period of disruption that is calamitous for certain sectors of the economy? Well, yeah, I mean, there is there is that aspect of it that you do need to have it. But it's I also feel hesitant to say something like this is a crisis where people are going to be really badly hurt and um, you know it's a it's a really difficult pill to swallow to say hey look guys there's going to be a crisis and uh, you know things are going to get better in the long run but there's really substantial pain and that that is I think the role that government has to play in, in trying to smooth these things over and uh, you know unfortunately as I think you suggested sometimes it's a really blunt instrument you know uh, before we uh, we uh Actually, we've been doing this for a pretty long time. I'm just looking at the clock here. I do want to think about one of these uh, one of these stories that Gabrielle sent about China. This is a, almost a political story. So mm -hmm. it's a FT story. How will channel China handle its EM debtors in virus in the virus crisis? So we, I think you know that there's been a lot of talk about EM just getting crushed by the coronavirus, uh, both from a medical and humane perspective, but also from a debt perspective. And people are talking about debt moratoria or uh, write downs, whatever it might be for the countries. But then there's also this whole, um, what is it called? The, uh, the hub and spoke, I forgot what it's called, the, uh, the, the Chinese. The yeah. Belt and Road, right? Uh, yeah. Where the <laughs> hub and spoke is the airline. That's uh, <laughs> the 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 Chinese are in Latin America. They're in Asia. Uh, they're in Africa. So what are they going to do to these debtors when they can't pay? Is it that they're going to grab territory, so to speak, from a geopolitical perspective? How are they going to treat these debtors? I think that's a very uh, hairy 
political uh, uh, football because at this point in time, we're dealing with a situation where the U.S. and China are moving apart from one another, that we're seeing sort of a, a cold war, if you will, between the two countries. Yeah, you know, right as we're about to end here, Ed, you bring up the probably the, the thorniest, biggest problem uh, in uh, in perhaps the, the global economy is, which is the the increasing Cold War between uh, the U.S. and China. And I and I think you're spot on. All the things you say are, um, again, very much uh, we have to see. Uh, look, it seems pretty clear that we're seeing a, a major sort of phase shift in the structure of the, the global uh, economy and in multilateral organizations more broadly. This is a probably the largest change we've seen in a short period of time to the entire post-war Bretton Woods, you know, kind of Paris Club system uh, uh, for, for the way these issues get sorted out and how precisely China is going to react vis-a-vis -vis the 76 debtor nations that there's the suggestion of a debt moratorium in. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? My my thinking honestly is 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 that uh, the uh, the war the Cold War will be accelerated because there will be a land grab of sorts. That is is that increasingly there's the potential for uh, countries to say uh, you know we can't have both. Uh, the U.S. has said to us that if we pick you in this particular fight, then we're against them. So we need to go all in with you. Or will you give us protection? And vice versa. And so suddenly you have a, a bifurcation where people are taking sides and you have a, a, a breakdown in globalization on, on that level. I think that there's the potential that, that we have that sort of outcome because it really looks like uh, there's there are very few ways to 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 bring it back to to the way that it used to be before uh, we did deglobalization. You've just perfectly framed uh, the most uh, challenging question in the world uh, on Friday afternoon, just as people are about to relax for the weekend. <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, like I've, I've been saying recently, we got to end on a good note. I don't know what the good note is other than the fact that I'm about to go and drink some red wine at some point now. But uh, I think that uh, it, it's hard to come up with anything positive at this point in time with regard to that thorny issue, because yeah. really confrontation is the word. Uh, indeed. I think I'm going to go pour myself a glass as well. Well, on that note, Ash, it has been a pleasure talking to you. You and I will be back. I will have a very nice Ash-like haircut on Monday, and uh, just have a great weekend. Looking forward to seeing it, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.